Good morning. This morning's sermon passage is Exodus 31 in its entirety. So Exodus 31, verses 1 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my na by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all, to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Well, if you've ever crossed the Bay Bridge in Maryland, or had a tour of the U.S. Capitol building, or traveled the subway on, in New York, wonder if you've ever stopped to kind of marvel at those feats of engineering. So amidst the busyness of travel and conversation and itinerary, have you ever stopped and just kind of wondered how in the world somebody could draw up and construct things like that, things of those magnitude? Maybe you've wondered who they are. One of the landmarks that you've heard me talk about before that always kind of captures my imagination is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the tallest building in the world. Uh, at 2,716 feet high, the Burj Khalifa took 22 million man hours to construct. The amount of rebar used if laid end to end would extend over a quarter of the way around the world. No wonder projects like this, like these, take years to complete. 
construction is a marvel. And over the past few months in our study in the book of Exodus, we've seen God, or Yahweh, that personal name for God that shows his self-existence, I am who I am, we've seen him lay out blueprints, construction plans for Moses, revealing what his dwelling place, his portable throne room will look like among his people. See, Yahweh had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He had brought them out in power, all for the purpose, we've said again and again, one purpose of entering into relationship with them through covenant for his glory. So starting in chapter 20, he laid out his law, the Ten Commandments, and then in the chapters following, he revealed his book of the covenant. And then in chapter 24, after hearing all these things, Israel agreed to obey. And so with the agreement, the covenant agreement in place, God in chapter 25 and following up to this point has instructed Moses how, to dwell, how he will dwell with his people in a tabernacle, in a tent, alongside their tents. So we've seen him describe the inner room of the tabernacle called the most holy place where Yahweh will be intensely present over the mercy seat. And then we've seen kind of backing up the larger outer room called the most holy or called the holy place where the the priests will work daily to keep fresh bread on the holy table and and the lampstand burning and, and the altar of incense sending its incense into the air through the curtain into the most holy place. We saw last week how that's kind of representative of God's people's prayers entering into the most holy place when his people couldn't. And then we've gone kind of even further outside the tabernacle where there's a courtyard where animals are sacrificed to represent the rightful punishment the people deserve for sin. And all of this has, I don't know about you, has seemed super intricate and elaborate. But we've seen over and again again that all of it is incredibly essential if a holy God will dwell with sinful people. And now we come to the end of God's instructions in chapter 31. And now we see a question that maybe Moses was asking. Who's going to do this? Who's going to complete the major construction project that is the tabernacle? So I see the blueprints, Lord. Who's going to build? With our time together this morning, really the passage Angelus read for us easily splits down into two distinct parts. God's workers and God's rest. And those will be our two points this morning, God's workers and God's rest, focusing mostly on that first point. So God's workers, look there in verse one. Yahweh says to Moses, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Yori, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. So this Bezalel has been specifically called out by God to lead the tabernacle construction project. The job has been clearly defined in chapters 25 through 30, and now God says he has chosen this guy named Bezalel for the job. But he continues. He says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood 
to work in every craft. Rarely do we see the Spirit of God in the Old Testament attend a specific person. But this is one of those instances. Bezalel of Judah will be filled with God's Spirit, and that filling will grant him this ability to work on the tabernacle. He'll have this intelligence to head up the project. He will have knowledge and wisdom and all sorts of different areas that need attention. He'll have both the know and the know-how. What a job, right? I mean, after all these instructions over the last six chapters, this is proving to be a huge task. I mean, from working to constructing wood frames all the way to the delicate work of setting a precious stone in a gold filigree for the priestly garments. Who's fit for this job? Bezalel is. How? Because of God's Spirit. So remember, back in chapter 26, when we looked at those intricate details about the tabernacle, we kind of zoomed out and saw the point of the tabernacle in the grand story of the Bible. So we saw how the tabernacle is meant by God to be a picture of the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that? So if if the garden was a place where God last dwelt with and met with his people in a special way before sin entered, the tabernacle now will in some sense seek to restore that communion with God. So remember that the way into the tabernacle is from the east. The way into the Garden of Eden was from the east. Uh, The curtains over the entrance to the tabernacle were embroidered with cherubim, the same creature that guarded the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were cast out. So as Israel approaches the tabernacle, they are approaching God's special dwelling place. And here we see hints of Genesis once again. So remember Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And who was hovering over the face of the waters? The Spirit of God. So here's these echoes again. So just as with the first creation in Genesis, here in the picture of Eden that is the tabernacle, again we see the presence and power of the Spirit of God at work in the creating process. Isn't that cool? It's also interesting to note that in this speech from Yahweh to Moses, revealing the construction plans for the tabernacle from chapters 25 to 31, We see that phrase, the Lord said to Moses, Yahweh said to Moses, seven times. Just like the seven days of creation. It seems clear that Moses in Exodus is seeking to hearken our attention back to Genesis and the creation of the world. The world was meant to be God's dwelling place, the tent of his glory. But with sin ruining that, now this smaller tent will picture the dwelling place of God's glory, bringing God's people back into communion with him, bringing them back into relationship. That relationship that had been severed by sin is now being restored through grace, covenant, and sacrifice. There in verse 6, another man named Aholiab is appointed by God to work alongside Bezalel. 
And then we see the crew of hard hats emerge as Yahweh says, I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then there in verses 7 through 11, we see again the catalog of the tabernacle, all its furnishings and its various components. And then in verse 11, Yahweh says, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Bezalel and his crew will follow God's commands exactly as he had shown in his blueprint on the mountain. And church, as I studied this passage this past week, I was struck by God's incredible grace in these first 11 verses. I mean, it's gracious enough that he's delivered his people from slavery. It's gracious enough he has followed through on the covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis and brought his people out from Egypt. It's, it's gracious enough he's given them his law so that they know how to follow him. It's gracious enough he has agreed to dwell with them. But even now, his grace extends even to the ability his people have to accomplish his commands. I love how one pastor puts it when he says, we need the Spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. God doesn't give Moses this incredible task and then say, good luck. I'll leave it up to you to figure out how to make hammered works of gold and embroider cherubim on curtains. He gave of himself by his Spirit to ensure the work would be done. Now, perhaps they had innate skill already, but hadn't that also been given by God? Dear church, I think this should remind us of the character of the grace of our God in our salvation and our growth in Christ. God doesn't praise him. God doesn't save us and then leave us on our own to find our way in this new life we have. He provides what he commands. God provides what he commands. So the other day I, I did what I do all too often. Um, so while getting the family settled in our van after a, a playground excursion that had gone a little awry, um, we had to take care of some things that took more time than we thought they would. And all the while I had put that key in the ignition and turned it halfway on to keep the battery on without the engine. And so when I finally got to turning on the car and all the family was set and strapped in, battery was dead. I couldn't. And believe it or not, uh, police officers are not allowed to jump your cars. I found that out because I asked them because they were there. I didn't call them or anything. Not that crazy. But then a nice gentleman came by and help me jumpstart my car. And I always, after every time that happens, because it's been numerous times, I was like, that's going to be the last. But as I was thinking about that example, I wonder if we think of God's grace like that. We made a mistake. We ran out of energy. And we need a jumpstart. I mean, do you think of his salvation, his new life in Christ as kind of this jumpstart, this jolt of energy to awaken you to obedience? And then kind of see what you're going to do with it. No, God, 
Friends, God's grace is complete. It's all-encompassing. He commands and he equips. He instructs and he enables. It doesn't mean we don't play a part. I'm sure Bezalel was sweating a lot when he was making this tabernacle. It doesn't mean we don't exert any energy, but it does mean that God's grace never runs out and it never comes to an end for us. It doesn't run on a schedule and take breaks. As a church father, Augustine once prayed in his confessions, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you command. That's the prayer of a Christian who understands God's grace. Lord, I will do whatever you tell me to do. Just please give me what I need to do it. How complete and wonderful is the grace of God. And church, there's another application for us here as well. So Bezalel, Aholiab, and their whole team are gifted by God to build his dwelling place, the tabernacle. And do you remember, when we looked at the tabernacle a few weeks back, what it points forward to? So it points forward to Christ, right? In the beginning, or in John 1, it says that Jesus came and tabernacled with his people. But do you remember what it points to now? It points to us. To the church. The church is the dwelling place of God in the world. We are tabernacles. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul asks that rhetorical question, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's speaking to the church. We are God's dwelling place, Loudon Valley Baptist Church. Paul says it even more clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. So Paul uses this image of a building to picture the church and our growth in Christ. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that it's ultimately Jesus who builds his church. In that kind of fundamental way, it's Christ and Christ alone who will build his church. And he will not fail. But we also see in the New Testament this unbelievable reality that believers in the church have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ. So, church, like like Bezalel and Aholiab, I think we, in a way, can see ourselves as construction workers, helping to build up the body of Christ, the dwelling place of God on earth, all not through our strength, but the Holy Spirit's strength through us. Members of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, you, each one of you, have been skilled and gifted by the Spirit of God to build up this congregation. Do you realize that? 
You're never just an attender. You're never just an observer. You are an essential part of the building up of God's church. That's why we take membership so seriously here at Loudoun Valley. Membership is our way to obey these things, to commit to using our various gifts by the Spirit's power to build up the church and bring God glory. So in our membership covenant, you can read it online, we say it again and again at our members' meetings as a church in unison. Uh, Part of the promises we promise each other is that we will work to build up this church in the knowledge and maturity of Christ. And then later on in the covenant, we will responsibly steward our spiritual gifts to the service of this church. So fellow member, can you see how what you do in service here at Loudoun Valley is not just a Sunday chore, but an eternal construction project? I mean, do you see how serving in the nursery, which so many of you do, is not just babysitting, but kingdom building? It is. Even when you're changing diapers. Some of you, I think, need to hear this truth from Exodus 31 and then kind of fast forwarded into the New Testament. I think you need to hear it and be chastened. Rebuked, perhaps. Perhaps you call yourself a Christian, but you haven't committed to a local church where you can carry out your gifts in covenant with others. And perhaps you are a member here at Loudoun Valley and you're just not using your gifts and skills to build up this body. And you know it. I pray that you would take seriously this the pursuit of learning and prayerfully considering how the Lord would use you by his spirit to build up this body in ways that you are not. You will find great joy in that pursuit. But for most of us, most of you, I think you need to hear from this passage this morning incredible encouragement. So if you're feeling worn out in ministry here at Loudoun Valley, if you're feeling unnoticed, maybe, un- maybe underappreciated, just recognize the amazing nature of the work that you're doing here. Your work in serving this church, whatever that looks like, is part of building up the dwelling place of God on earth. I know sometimes serving the church can feel like running on a hamster wheel especially when you do set up and tear down every single week, right? Start up the van, hook up the trailer, set up the drapes, pair it all down, take it back. Next Sunday, set up the drapes, turn on the van. It can feel like not much progress is being made because the same things are done over and over again. I think that, that's that way in prayer too. Another member of the church has told you about a struggle that, you, that they have, and you've agonized over that in prayer again and again and again and again. To no avail. Is anything happening here? Church, I can assure you on the authority of God's word, it is. Things are happening. God is being glorified, and the church is being built up whether you feel like it or not. So the next time you pray through the membership directory... The next time you make a meal for someone, the next time you serve in nursery, 
the next time you set up the drapes. Remember that what you're doing is much bigger than you or even the person or persons you're serving. It's about God's glory on earth through his people. I'm not over-spiritualizing this. This is the work of the church. And you're the workers in the church. Be encouraged. So that's God's workers. That's our first point. The second part of the passage is showing God's rest. So there in verse 12, the practical instructions regarding the tabernacle have now come to uh, a finish. It's now time to roll out the implementation of the blueprint, right? But before Yahweh is done, before we see there in the last few verses that he gives Moses these uh, tablets that we'll see more next week, tablets that won't last long, right? He spends six verses reiterating his command to keep the Sabbath, to observe rest and refreshment from labor on that seventh day of the week. So we saw this back in chapter 16 already, where the Israelites were not to gather manna on the seventh day. And then we saw the the Sabbath command become official in the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Remember when Joe preached to us back in November on the Sabbath. You can go back and listen to that if you want a refresher. But why repeat that here? I mean, after such practical instruction, this feels a little bit out of place. Why bring it up again between, like, here's the tabernacle, here's how you're going to build it, go build it. In the middle, remember keep the Sabbath. Well, again, think about what the tabernacle is. It's a picture of Eden, right? The construction of the tabernacle kind of mirrors the construction of the world. And what did God do at the end of the construction of the world? He rested. He Sabbathed. And so that same pattern is seen here as God reminds his people, his workers, to rest at the end of their creation of the tabernacle. He even points back to his creation there in verse 17. The Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. But we also see Yahweh introduce something new about the Sabbath here, something he hasn't said anywhere else so far. So there in verse 13, he says that the Sabbath will be a sign. So you think about different signs we've seen in covenants throughout the Bible. The rainbow with Noah, the circumcision with Abraham. Now we see the Sabbath is going to, in a way, be a sign of the Mosaic covenant. And what's it going to be a sign of? It will be a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord Yahweh, sanctify you. See, God has brought Israel out of Egypt to make them his own possession by covenant. The Sabbath, as we see in Deuteronomy 5, will be a time for them to remember his deliverance. But it's also going to be a time for them to remember their special consecrated life now that they've been delivered. That they're a holy people. That they're set apart for God's glory. That he has both accomplished deliverance in them and will accomplish holiness in them. God will not just deliver by grace, but rule by grace. 
The Sabbath will be set aside as holy, and anyone who perverts it will be seen as rebelling against the holiness of God and merit utmost punishment. Verses 14 and 15. So this isn't the first time we've seen the Sabbath in Exodus. But we're told here it's a covenantal sign of God's sanctification. His making his people holy. And in that sense, again, we're pointed ahead to Christ, aren't we? In Matthew 12, Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Elsewhere, he says, the Sabbath was made for me. But what does he say right before he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath? So that's the beginning of Matthew 12. At the end of Matthew 11, what's he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The Sabbath was a sign that pointed to a rest even more real and substantial. I love how Paul says that, I think in Colossians, when he says, don't worry about all the days and stuff. The substance is in Christ. Rest is in Christ. Jesus is our rest. And isn't it wonderful to be thinking about this right after thinking about work in the church? This is a needed reminder for us as we think about this church and the way we need to be building it up. Our rest, as we serve the church, as we labor, as we literally sweat, as we literally go overlooked and unnoticed in the things that we're doing in this church, which many of you do, your rest while you do that can never be in the noticing from others. I hope that happens. That's part of the encouragement that God commands, but that's not where your rest is to be. Your rest will never be able to be in the praise that you receive from other members in the church. Your rest can never be in your own spiritual maturity as that grows. Your rest can never be in constant service. I know many of you love serving, and that's part of the Holy Spirit's bringing satisfaction into your heart as you build up the church. But that can't be where your rest is. Your rest can never be in your gifts, your skills, your families, your jobs, your health, your beauty, your wealth, your social media popularity, your sports achievement, your intellect, your conservatism, your open-mindedness, your end times theology, or anything else. Your rest can ever and must ever only be in Christ. In both the deliverance he has accomplished for you and in the holiness that he promises to give you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest Israel celebrated. As they were to work, they were to rest. Are you restless this morning? Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, so you don't understand yourself to believe in Jesus like you've heard us talk about today. If that's you, what a joy it is to have you with us. We mean that. We are delighted you're here. How would you answer that question, though? Are you restless? Have there been areas of your life that you've kind of pursued rest and peace and maybe found it for a time, but it never never kind of stayed solid? Rest can be elusive for all of us. You can be like that blindfolded child at a 
birthday party trying to swap the pinata, but that annoying dad constantly pulling it out of the way. We think that God is kind of like this annoying father who never lets us find rest in the things we want to find rest in. If you feel that way, you're in good company. I can assure you that everyone sitting in this room, regardless of age, has tried to find rest in things other than God and failed. But by amazing grace, those of us here who are Christians have found that at the end of ourselves, Jesus is enough. See, when we rebelled against God and and spurned his rule over us and and tried to find rest in other places, Jesus came and what did he do? He lived a life of perfect rest. Perfect rest in his Father. Obedience to his Father. The life we should have lived. But on the cross, he took on himself the condemnation for our sin-breaking, for our restlessness. He took on himself not only our sin, but the kind of the restless torture that our sin produces, that constant fear that we might live a meaningless life, that constant nagging of just the fact that life is just not what I, I want it to be right now. When will it be that way? Jesus died our death in our place so we could find eternal rest for our souls. And if you turn to him today, Friend, you will be saved, and you will find eternal rest. And dear Christian, how are you resting today? I'm not asking about kind of that ratio between your work and your leisure this past week. I'm not asking about kind of like, do you spend too much time on Netflix or social media, or do you actually work way too hard and burn the candle on both ends? All good things to think about. I think if you have more questions about that, go back and listen to Joe's sermon on the Sabbath. He got much more in detail in those things, which are helpful. But as we think about it again today, what about your relationship with God, right? Are you finding rest in that relationship? Or is it a burden? Be honest. Is it a drag? And do you find joy in living for God and and battling sin and striving for holiness? Or has life, your faith life, just kind of become dull and, and even heavy? There's good news for you, weary Christian. God will grant what he has commanded. He will keep you. And hold you fast. This life is a fleeting breath, but his rest is eternal and will not fade away. So, Christian, lift your head and listen again with fresh ears to the invitation of your Savior. This invitation will never expire, and its reality will last and be yours forever. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You don't need to earn it, you need to receive it. Christian, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this this chapter. 
that kind of joins together work and rest in a way that we're really bad at doing. And thank you for making us your people, giving us the joy of helping build up your dwelling place, the church. What, what an amazing privilege that is. But thank you that as we do that, we can rest assured that you have given us rest. Rest that is not elusive, but eternal. We praise you for that rest now. In Jesus' name, amen.